Hello and welcome to Senior Studio, hosted by me, Ben Jacobs of Senior's Capital. With this podcast, we aim to give listeners inside access to the best and brightest investors in the crypto asset management industry. In each episode, I will chat with a leading crypto and blockchain venture fund or hedge fund manager as we explore the complexities of operating an investment fund at the bleeding edge of innovation. In this episode, I sit down with John Moore and Gabby Goldberg of the Chernin Group Crypto. At TCG, Gabby and John invest in Web3 consumer applications and related infrastructure. Deploying out of a $120 million Fund 1, TCG has and continues to invest in payments, collectives, gaming, entertainment, and consumer-related utility products. The fund has a unified thesis around digital ownership, unlocking net new and business accretive opportunities. Tune in for unique insights into the application layer, mobile, wallets, and more. Let's get into it. Ben Jacobs is a partner at Senius Capital Management. All views expressed by Ben and the guests of this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Senius Capital Management. Guests and the host may maintain positions in the assets and funds discussed in this podcast. You should not treat any opinion expressed by anyone on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of their personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right. Welcome to this week's edition of the Senior Studio. I am your host, Ben Jacobs of Senior's Capital. And today we have Jonathan Moore and Gabby Goldberg from TCG, the Churning Group Crypto. How's it going, guys? Going going well. Nice. Excited to be here. Yeah, I feel like we got a little LA fam on this call. We should have done this in person at like Minotti's. I have a lot that I want to cover today. And you guys are the consumer experts. And I think this is an area of focus for the entire industry in that we've spent years building infrastructure, but are there use cases? Why would someone use this in a day-to-day way of life? So I actually saw your tweet, Gabby, the other day that asked about durable consumer use cases that will onboard the most net new consumers, and you kind of put it out to the Twitter universe to hear some responses. I'm curious for each of you, what is your response to that specific question? And we'll start with you, Gabby. Yeah, I mean, I think a big takeaway from putting that tweet out, and I this is what I was expecting, is a lot of people from the outside look inwards at crypto and dismiss it as an echo chamber and a lot of people are kind of tribal and all believe the same thing and you look at the comments of this tweet and it's pretty funny because basically every reply is a totally different answer and a totally different prediction on what the durable consumer use case for crypto will actually look like and I think a lot of them are actually really sound and so it's hard to pick one but the one that I'm most compelled by is membership and loyalty for brands moving into the space and generally having portable and composable interest in social graphs and the ability to have interoperability from a read perspective is what I think is really game-changing. But I think, and also kind of going back to my first point, I think JMO has a different perspective. All right, JMO, handing it off to you. 
Yeah, I think I think Debbie for me it's kind of like one A one B between like digital property rights, like you mentioned, like loyalty and membership, and then also composable financial products, things like stable coins, asset management, digital payments. I think for me both of those are interesting because they can like leverage more blockchain based rails in a way that's like additive to existing consumer desires, and I know that's something we'll plan to discuss a, a good amount today. But yeah, I, it's pretty interesting to see like just the variety of answers it shows how early we are. Absolutely. JMO, would love to, to hear your background. How'd you get into crypto? How'd you land at churning? What's the story? Yeah. Well, first off, really excited to be here. Appreciate you having us, Ben. I, I got into crypto in 2017. Like a lot of people, I just heard about Ethereum, heard about just the insane price action on some of these charts. Near the top of the cycle, just had a large bag of Cardano. That, so it was pretty obvious. So I was very new to what was going on. I then kind of spent two years working on Wall Street, doing distressed credit research, and eventually heard about the training group on a podcast where one of our board partners, Marco DiMarillis, was kind of talking about investing in life stages. And I was like really interested in kind of their really consumer focused investment approach. Wanted to do some stuff I could like tell my mom about. It wasn't distressed bonds. So I eventually joined the trending group in October of 2020. Came over, like initially it's just like a younger analyst trying to think about like some of our thematic research. Started to spend a lot of time looking at consumer finance and like the ownership and creator economy. And if you know anything about the churning group, you know, we're a decade legacy old consumer fund founded by Peter Churnin, Mike Kearns, and Jesse Jacobs. Then on one side, we kind of have been investing consumer and on the other side, we do a lot of stuff in content with our vehicle called North Road Productions. And so we're like really, I think, very you know, consistent around thinking like a, a lot around how, you know, go to market and content can shape our thesis around like what's going on in the world. And so for us, when we started to see the race of like NFTs, it was really obvious that it was going to be really, really powerful for how creators and companies could think about like relationships with their end users. And so we invested in the OpenSea seed round before I came here and then started to invest in companies like Dabber Labs and we let the Series A and Z run all about out of a more growth stage vehicle. We wanted to start going earlier. And so we started to raise a fund around it. And that's kind of where Gabby joined the team and started to kind of help shape some of the work we're doing here. So I can pass it off to you, Gigi, if you want to share your background too. Yeah, for sure. It's been an absolute blast. And it's crazy to think that it's almost been two years with TCG already. And it's been really cool to see how far we've come and how our perspectives have shifted. My experience getting here and coming into crypto, honestly, in a lot of ways, kind of dates back to just growing up. I feel like I was one of the last groups of kids who grew up with like a designated computer room in the house. And my brothers and I were addicted to Minecraft and RuneScape and other kind of digital worlds. And I grew up with this notion of a digital identity, and that was always really important to me. In college, I studied computer science and philosophy, worked in the virtual reality lab on campus. I concentrated in human-computer interaction. And again, this concept of what a digital identity looks like, how you grow and moderate social computing systems, things like that, that was kind of top of mind. And eventually kind of like settled on this thesis that has carried over throughout my career. I've been in venture for my career, starting first at a $10 million micro fund and then at a much larger fund 
And the thesis is basically that the first wave of true social apps like MySpace, Facebook, even like Instagram to a degree were all about bringing your real life experiences online. So MySpace and Facebook were about connecting with your real life friends. Instagram was about taking real life photos and putting them online. And for those use cases, those platforms obviously worked quite well and grew a lot. And where we are now is over the last decade, we've spent so much time online and we're only spending more time online. And we don't just have real life experiences that we share here, but we have digital experiences, right? We make online friends, we follow influencers, we watch live streams, we take screenshots, we buy NFTs. And the way that we're interacting online has really fundamentally shifted. And yet those platforms that we use haven't shifted in line with the change in those consumer behaviors. And so I was investing in traditional consumer products and started to get really disenchanted of disenchanted by this kind of disconnect of platforms that we use to grow and fund and operate different networks, but we don't have the ability to collectively own them. So that was kind of the pathway that made me fall down the rabbit hole. Ben, you mentioned Minotti's at the beginning of this conversation. Actually, Minotti's played a big role in me coming into the crypto community really fully because I was hanging out at their Crypto Mondays meetups all the time. Getting a crypto Venetian with the Bright Moments community was very pivotal for me. Generally, kind of spending enough time in this space got to this point where I really wanted to invest in early stage consumer with this angle towards supporting decentralized and open networks that I think are going to be very valuable for this next iteration of the internet. And when I met JMO, met Jared, heard about how TCG was thinking about this and their history and thinking about consumer and media, it was a no-brainer for me and a very quick decision to come over. Love it. Thank you both. And I do think that Minotti's Bright Moments Gallery summer 2021 i think a magical moment you know pinnacle in venice history but also in in kind of the rise of this this new movement gabby you were touching on your individual thesis for consumer and the shift from the physical world to the digital world how have you together with john moore and jared dicker who and the three of you kind of comprise the, the core focus of the investment team. How have you taken your individual backgrounds and perspectives and developed a thesis for TCG crypto? And then building on it, how has that thesis evolved since you guys first coalesced and, and raised the fund? Sure. I don't want to speak for John and Jared for this beginning part. So I'll kind of share kind of my own perspective as I came into TCG crypto two years ago and then kind of how we think about the thesis now and then I'll pass it off to JMO to kind of follow up with some examples of what this has looked like for us but when I came into this role I think in a lot of ways I was naive or maybe it was a product of where the market was at the time but I really felt like my job was to in the truest sense of the word onboard people to crypto I remember it was one Thanksgiving and I got my dad and his friends to download Rainbow and set up their own wallets and I helped them write down their seed phrase and I told them like, you know, don't tell anyone, but also don't lose it. And my dad can't even remember his Facebook password. So the whole thing was just a disaster, but it was really exciting for me to kind of show people what crypto could be for them, sending them an NFT for the first time or getting them an ENS domain. And those things were really magical moments. 
in a lot of ways, like I said, looking back on that feels really naive. I don't think that that is how most consumers are going to onboard to crypto. Specifically, this idea of self-custody, I think, is a huge blocker. And even for people like us, is filled with friction. And then you think about other individuals who maybe don't have interest in crypto, don't even maybe have a real need for crypto, right? Like they might live in the U.S. and their existing system works for them. This notion of onboarding is really tough. And what we've noticed over the last two years is that the people who are onboarded to crypto through means like that oftentimes move in and out of crypto when the price of Bitcoin goes up and down. And it's really difficult to build a sense of retention when you have users kind of coming in without the education necessary. So if you think about crypto on maybe a spectrum where on the left side you have really web 2.1 type products that are really consumer businesses that are built on crypto rails that's on one side and then way on the other side you have crypto native businesses or maybe crypto native areas of consumer passion and then you have the middle which is kind of what I had just explained we used to spend more time in the middle and really where we spend a lot of time now are on the edges of the spectrum and actually the middle feels a little bit like no man's land where the users move in and out of the space they don't have passion in any given arena and it's highly speculative obviously speculation is a huge part of crypto i think we'll probably touch on this later but really focusing on areas of consumer passion and focusing on durable customer segments is where we try to spend a lot of time and those are on the edges so jmo if you have you know specific examples of what that has kind of looked like yeah, I think you, that was so well said. It's, I think it's very interesting because for us, the true north has always been like, how can we actually get this technology in the hands of the most people? But it's, I think it's taken us, you know, going through a cycle, really observing what like people are doing on a day to day and where the like progress of the technology exists to, I think, be like intellectually honest around what like onboarding actually looks like. And it has really manifested in this barbell approach. You know, there's like for us, like a good example is in gaming, which I think is a pretty polarizing topic amongst like a good amount of VCs. I know last year, you know, gaming raised more money than DeFi when it comes to crypto. So it's it's definitely something that, you know, there's some excitement and capital around, but there's still a lot of hesitance. And I think there's a lot of hesitance because a lot of the most popular games we've seen have kind of been in the middle where the kind of that web 2.5 approach where they are might want to have some aspect of the game logic on chain. They might want to try and introduce some like DeFi components to the like experience when in reality, it's going to be really difficult for someone to have to go through all of this friction to onboard. And so for us, when it comes to gaming, we think on one side, there's web 2.1 games like Gabby articulated where you know, we're probably seeing a team that has like a lot of legacy experience actually building a game, has a very specific point of view on their go-to-market, who they will onboard, and why they can convince someone to play this game. And then they're only really using crypto for like some form of off-chain assets where you can still get like the exponential secondary market kind of outcomes that you see with a lot of crypto native experiences. Then on the other side, right, We'll have full-blown Web3 ga- on-chain games where you have on-chain games with on-chain assets where people are looking and thinking about like delegation and having like entity component systems on-chain. And we've tried to like take this approach and obviously apply it to our investing framework as well. And so for us, it's really about thinking about like these edge cases where you either have 
tech crypto that's additive to what existed before, or you're finding completely net new experiences. But that true north of like, why is this uniquely enabled by crypto is still very obvious. That's super helpful. JMO, I wanted to ask you specifically about passion and crypto. So you guys are very focused on finding you know, these communities that love an artist or they love a sports team or they want to participate in something and be a user owner, active consumer of this product or organization, whatever it may be. Are there examples of that passion existing now in crypto when the speculation and the financialization of it is not really promising because no one's making money? And yeah, and then, yeah, we'd love your answer to that. Yeah, for sure. I think this one is very, it's very, it's a very nuanced problem. And I think crypto kind of introduced a new dynamic where historically, right, you just had a consumer and someone creating, right, the opportunity or the product or, you know, the person selling the service. But now because you have tokens, right, and all these other ways to align and incentivize people, you have this new speculator. And so it's, we found it like very, it's very interesting because it can be great when the speculation is a tailwind for you and it can be a nightmare when it's a headwind. And so for us, when we think about passion, it's like really trying to take a more like data-driven approach. Like in 2022, you know, maybe there were 30 million monthly active users on MetaMask. You know, Ultra Booty alone has 30 million consumers in their loyalty program, right? There's like so many specific pockets of passion that exists within consumer like use cases today. So when we think about crypto, we kind of think about de-risking all the friction that still exists by really trying to prioritize areas of passion, because we know if you can actually provide like a net new or additive experience that felt personally or professionally prohibitive, and it's in an area of passion, someone will be more willing to jump through the hoops or right, hopefully right to just onboard and take a new chance, like a new, more digital experience. And so when I think about areas of passion today, some that get us kind of excited and some of them are in like our portfolio company or do like, do like leverage ownership as like a whole new aspect way of how someone can participate. One is kind of like archive, which is kind of like a decentralized museum that, you know, we're really excited about just given people who really have not had access to a lot of like legacy pieces that shape a lot of culture today. Another one is Hume, right? Like in the music space, which is more of like a, you know, a decentralized label kind of run by fans where someone who is a hyper fan can actually have that upside to participate and shape the decisions of some of their favorite artists. And so I think passion for us really manifests itself in how we can, you know, think about partnering with, you know, experiences and founders that we think are going to be more durable because, you know, Bitcoin's at 60K or 30K, people are still listening to their favorite artists and they're still more than willing to, you know, engage in really interesting parts of culture. So for us, it's more about that long-term, like the point of view, I think. Can you elaborate on the archive example? Because I do think it is a unique instance in which there is user participation in the collection and aggregation of this museum. I'm curious to hear more, but then also where is the value being created for those users? Do they have a stake in the museum's collection? 
Yeah, I'm happy to speak to it, but I know Gabby is the closest on our team, so I can, and she's here, yeah. so I can pass it off. I can, <laughs> I can hop in. I mean, so Jimo touched on this, and I think we'll continue to talk about this, but our view for crypto in examples like this one is when crypto really works for consumer, it's not an isolated asset or platform, but it's used as a tool. And this is a really good example. When you think about museums today, arguably they're one of the most exclusive asset classes ever created. Curated collections have outpaced the overall art market, which has in turn outpaced the S&P 500. It's a really lucrative place to spend your time and your capital. And yet Archive believes that these museums are run entirely backwards, right? Power is consolidated at the very top of who gets to curate. Actually, not just the people who put their art in a museum, but people who even gets to buy that art. They control access. As an example, 95% of museum items sit in storage at any given time, right? So think about how many people in the world get to go to the Met. And then you actually go to the Met and you really don't even get to see very much at all of the collection that they have. So the idea is people want to curate and own and preserve culture, but the ability to do so is controlled by established institutions who lock that into private collections. And so Archive really tries to create the first decentralized physical museum. What like what if the Met or the Smithsonian was not just curated but owned by the internet? And it uses NFTs as a way to decentralize membership and ownership of the actual collection. So the actual model of it is like maybe a little bit too complex for the time that we have today, but basically decentralizing curation of who actually gets to pick these assets is really interesting. And it's a perfect example of this real consumer passion. Like you go into the archive discord and you get involved in the community and basically everybody here has a nine to five job. Actually, many of them are well-renowned in the art space, but also a fair amount of them are just people who love art and they've never found a way to have it be a part of their profession, right? So how does crypto unlock these passion areas that were previously either professionally or just personally prohibitive? And it's people like after their nine to five, coming into this discord, hanging out, joining the curatorial calls, submitting items to acquire, and that's actually how decisions get made. And so it's a good example of like crypto really just being used as a tool. It's not used as a platform. I think broader macro shifts in the crypto environment have not affected how people spend time in archive. So it's been interesting to see that unfold. It's been interesting to watch archive unfold when you look at more web 2.0 examples like Masterworks, where there are these organizations and leadership within this organization that is purchasing and then fractionalizing ownership in a Basquiat or a Warhol or something like that versus archive is effectively doing the same thing, but the users are more involved in the development of the the portfolio and how. Yeah. So I I find that to, to be a really cool example. I think one of the best use cases for crypto, actually, sorry, just within consumer is this notion of building headless brands. And the analogy that I think works particularly well for Archive is this example of you go to the Louvre to see the Mona Lisa, but you also go to see the Mona Lisa because it's in the Louvre. And you can build a brand by the assets that are underneath the umbrella of the thing. Actually, way on the other side of the spectrum, we have a seat in Flamingo Dow, which is 
a crypto native DAO for acquiring digital assets. And so, you know, they have one of the largest collections of board apes, crypto punks, et cetera. And it's another good example of over the years, Flamingo has been able to build a brand of they acquire high value assets, but also these assets maintain value because they are acquired by Flamingo. And it becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy that I think Archive is trying to do as well. And I think crypto does a good job of being able to do that across different industries. I think we could do a full hour long session on Flamingo DAO and, and and tribute and all they, they've done to kind of innovate on the acquisition and that kind of a novel fund structure. It was interesting you brought up headless brands because the next topic I wanted to discuss was brands. So I would almost break it out into two categories. First is web two brands and how you guys are investing in infrastructure that is helping those large web two brands integrate web three tooling to create net new products and revenue opportunities. But then also what do what does the future of like a web three native clothing brand or media brand considering you guys are at churning? So let's maybe start first with Web two and the infra that's helping them leverage Web three, and then and maybe Gabby you can cover that, and then JMO you can cover the Web three native brands or vice versa. Sure. Yeah, I'll repeat what I said earlier, and this I think makes a lot of sense for a lot of areas where we spend time. But we really believe that crypto works for consumer when. It's not an isolated platform, but it's folded in. So it's not trying to cut into an existing business, but instead adding something on top. And I think actually a good example of this is how we've seen NFTs evolve, particularly over the last year or so. We wrote about this in our end of year review at the end of 2022, which is on our blog on our site. But we've seen over time a shift in NFTs from being used as direct revenue streams towards NFTs being used actually as levers for distribution by way of ownership. And we actually see NFTs in many many ways moving towards very low cost or free just for that reason. So, you know, within crypto native companies that come to pitch us, we hear a lot of, you know, we've made this much money in primary sales on our NFTs, but we've made this much in secondary sales. And in a way it is really exciting because it shows that there's a lot of interest around the project, but You could also argue that it shows these people are essentially churning out, right? These are your community or audience members who have bought in and now they're selling out. And, you know, how many people can you cycle through with these secondary sales before you run out of people in the secondary activity? And so at a high level, we believe this model of monetizing primarily off of a secondary market decays pretty quickly for that reason, right? It produces this one-off revenue. It actually, in a a way, kind of incentivizes user churn. And so what we've seen with Web2 brands, going back to your question, who are moving into the space, so think about Starbucks and Reddit launching NFTs. These are like very low cost or free NFTs, and they're actually used as like a more clever acquisition hack. And so, you know, you come in for free and then you actually stay to discover what it brings you and this evolving utility. And that is pretty interesting to us. We actually have a company in our portfolio that JMO touched on medallion which launches fan clubs for existing artists so think my morning jacket Tycho, cigaros and as jmo mentioned these people don't care about crypto i mean maybe they do but that's not why they're there at all they enter the communities by way of a free nft 
And that level of ownership actually so far has resulted in these communities being bigger and more engaged than the Web2 counterparts that these artists have launched before. And so, you know, I mean, it's interesting. The question you asked of like Web2 brands with crypto or Web3 native brands, it kind of begs the question of what is a Web3 brand anyway? And in a lot of ways, I think Starbucks and Reddit do pass the test, right? They use this, they use this technology as a tool, which is how it's meant to be used. Yeah, go ahead, Jamma. I completely, I completely align with Gabby's thoughts, and I think it's it's kind of evolved in a lot of people's like framework that you know NFTs right are so much more than just a means of speculation, right? They're an incredible means of distribution, and they, I think something we've seen, especially when it comes to Web three brands today, things like Azuki or Pudgy Penguins, which I think a lot of people in the space are excited about. They're have done a good job of trying to. You know, really captivate and create a community of super fans. And for us, especially when we think about some of our partners of the fund, people who are like really deep in music and entertainment, for them, like the biggest thing they're seeing is just a rise of more verticalized fans. I think the internet was revolutionary for so many reasons, but one specifically was around that concept of a thousand true fans, where you can build massive, more verticalized businesses with people online that you may not have never met before, but who also absolutely love like reggaeton music, right? Or skiing, whatever, the, whatever the vertical interest might be. And so for some of the most popular Web3 brands, we're seeing that to Gabby's point, right? They're trying to monetize in ways that they have more control over. And when the only way you're monetizing is speculative, it's all royalties driven. While it's positive and amazing when you know markets are going up, when markets are going down, it's really, really difficult to have a firm point of view into your profitability. And so for us, I think the Web3 brands that get us the most excited are doing a really, really great job around cultivating, you know, a community of people who actually really care about like the product. They're seeing real value and utility outside of just trying to make money and outside of a, a, a high floor price. I think, you know, rarity and scarcity are all really, really interesting. But at the end of the day, especially when markets aren't going up into the right, you need something more, much more tangible that's going to keep someone engaged. And so for us, it's I think it's it consistently comes back to that point of view of like keeping first things first and allowing someone to develop a real affinity with the product. And when you financialize every aspect of it, it just makes it more and more difficult to see what's really there. So that's more of our point of view on both Web2 and I think Web3 brands. Yeah, I, I think those are all excellent points. Luca from Pudgy Penguins put out an excellent thread that kind of touched on that specifically, how he's not planning on launching more derivatives of Pudgy Penguins in NFT form, but rather he's trying to build out the brand and then the value will trickle down to the NFT holders over time as the brand grows. So I, I think that's that's right on the money. Emo, transitioning a little bit out of brands, NFTs, etc. From just a pure investment lens, how do you think about the integration of consumer investing with infrastructure and Web3 tools like tokens and NFTs is a project that's being built on an L2 or on its own sovereign app chain or on Solana. Does any of that play into your decision making on whether to back a company? 
100%. This is a question we get a good amount because so much of crypto right now, and really up until this point, has been more infrastructure focused, right? And it's obvious we need, you know, f faster speed, right? And like we need blockchains to be more performant. And it's like the infrastructure and versus the application is a kind of a debate that goes back and forth. For us, it's really critical to understand infrastructure because it does have like a direct impact on the, the ability for consumers to access your product. But we try to balance like novel infra with pragmatic applications and like use cases. What good is a novel L1 if there's no ecosystem of applications or strong builders that can also help support what you're doing? And so while it's great to have these more like emergent properties that are a result of more like technical, you know, new and improved L2, ZK, include your buzzword. We also find value in these network effects and communities and liquidity and things that are all aspects of an ecosystem that you might not have on your next net new L1, right? And so I think for us, tokens, right, have the, like, we view them as a superpower. I'm, I believe they're net positive, especially around you know, increasing global coordination and cooperation in ways we haven't seen before. But once you put take that genie out of the bottle, it's impossible to put it back in. And it's really important for us to think more about business model innovation than it is about like marginal improvements in infrastructure, right? What good are new blockchain rails if we have nothing to fill these train cars with? We, we think like similar to the earlier part of the internet. I was recently watching Mission Impossible 1 and Tom Cruise had a scene where he was like loading up the internet. And it was the funniest thing to me ever because it was like four big blocks and it was taking like a minute to load each picture. And for me, it becomes very obvious that consumers associate value with use case. And so what good is the, you know, the value of like all these different L1s if we don't have real use cases that we can like point them to. And so infrastructure will always be important and critical to keep your mind on. But for us, that true north is more around like the applications that will shape and really give a point of view on the infrastructure innovations. I think we just saw with Frank from D-Gods and Utes first migrating the community from Solana to Polygon and then returning a $3 million grant on Polygon to now bring Utes over to Ethereum. I think that's kind of one of the strengths of crypto is that you can port over these communities, these brands to all these different infrastructure layers to best serve your specific needs. But it is an interesting dynamic because you look at something like Solana and they've been advocating that you can mint a million NFTs for like a fraction of a price, but as ETH L2s and bases on chain summer and optimism stack and all that kind of making the, the playing field a little bit level, it'll be interesting to see how projects think about infra going forward. Gabby, anything you want to add there? My only kind of just like side note that I think is interesting is seeing many of these protocols turn into, or at least try to turn into brands in their own right and seeing communities be sort of tribal of, you know, being on the OP stack means a certain thing. Being a part of the Solana ecosystem means a certain thing. I don't know if that's just a product of where we are right now in the development of all of these ecosystems, but it's been interesting to kind of watch and, you know, like what it means to make a decision like that and who your audience becomes. It's, yeah, just a plus one of that, how fascinating it is because 
like it think for me gabby it just amplifies the echo chamber like you go talk to any random person on the street or even look at the top 10 projects that people on crypto twitter would never associate themselves with are still hundreds of millions of dollars in like t in total valuation and so it's it's very interesting around what the true north should be versus what we get caught up in discussing in these more tribal kind of arguments between l1s l2s and app chains absolutely i wanted to move towards mobile and wallets crypto hasn't really cracked mobile and that's where the majority of people spend their time online yes there's a big desktop culture primarily for zoom and and work but from a personal non-professional perspective everyone's on their phones all the time how come crypto hasn't cracked the mobile nut and maybe what are you guys seeing that is emblematic of how we are trying to enter into that the most promising medium all right i'll go first for (laughs) sure we're we're very excited about mobile applications for crypto i mean there today are almost no widely used mobile native web3 apps and there are a lot of interesting use cases from you know emerging markets DeFi on one side or experiences that are truly uniquely enabled by mobile so maybe something around geolocation, AR, kind of more social applications that can be supercharged or enabled by mobile that we are very excited about. I'll pass it to JMO in a second to talk more about kind of like what he's seeing in that space. But specifically, I think wallets do play a big part in this. And the friction of doing things on mobile and getting kicked out to a wallet application to actually complete a transaction is kind of a disaster right now. And we can kind of think back to like, how wallets are viewed today and how they have kind of reached scale and at least where we see them going. Today, all wallets have really been built and designed around one thing, which is transactions. So many of the wallets that we use today are more than three or four years old, and they were really built for this purpose of buying, trading, holding tokens, because that's all you could do at the time. And since then, the purpose of the wallet has really evolved. So, you know, if you think about MetaMask, for example, and how it reached scale, It was the wallet that allowed individuals to engage in DeFi summer. And so at that point, during DeFi summer, MetaMask's usage shot up from, I think it was like 500,000 to over 10 million just over that one summer because it allowed people to interact with crypto in in a way that they never could before. And so now there are so many other ways to engage with crypto, and we're very interested in how wallets or maybe even abstracting away the purpose of the wallet can help people do what they want to do in crypto. I actually think we've almost over-rotated to a degree with wallets where kind of as I touched on at the beginning of like getting my dad on Rainbow, and I think Rainbow is a great product for what it's worth. You get someone on a wallet and then once they're there, you realize that they had no business being there (laughs) to begin with. It's like, why do you actually need one? What are you doing? Right. And there was so much emphasis on getting people a wallet and less emphasis on actually getting them to do interesting things with it or putting interesting assets inside of it. And so really thinking more of the wallet as a browser that is abstracted away and used as a tool to enable you to do interesting things is where we're spending more and more time. And we've made a recent investment in the space that we haven't announced yet that we think can really help you know, mass market consumers do this in a way that feels very convenient, but also very secure, which we're excited about. From like a UX perspective, 
I think having a UX like this is really meaningful. And yet another thing that we've seen is that in a lot of ways, the juice is kind of worth the squeeze of if there's a consumer experience that people really want to be a part of, they actually aren't deterred by the terrible UX that exists in crypto today. So I think it's a balance of, you know, if we want to get to where we want to go, we need to abstract a lot of this away. We need to make these experiences feel more frictionless. But then on the other side, it's like you can have amazing rails and then no reason to go use them. And so the focus on really powerful and engage and engaging consumer experiences, I think, will always be at the forefront for us. 100 percent. I think to, to I think the next step from the juice is worth the squeeze and when it, in relation to like wallets and mobile is kind of around like necessity breeds innovation. And for me, that has is the most apparent when it comes to the need for mobile crypto experiences. I think it's so obvious around the world, right? How everyone is only accessing the internet through mobile. It's desktop isn't even an option for like just an overwhelming majority of people. And the fact that we don't have more crypto native experiences is my opinion is an outsized problem given the whole the only like the entire goal of this space is to get as many people as possible using this tech and so i think it really comes down to meeting people where they're at and for me the team in the project that's probably the most exciting around mobile to no surprise is solana and what they're doing with the sega phone and i think a lot of people initially saw the phone and were a little deterred in the fact that you know they had no need to leave their iphone or they really didn't even want to use the Solana chain to start. But for me, the reason why the Sega phone is interesting is more around this Solana mobile stack and the ability to get this, you know, this like actual like transformative like software innovation for mobile and like wallets and private keys into the like, you know, mass distribution channels like, you know, Samsung and others. And so I think mobile will have amazing and crypto has great product market fit internationally. And if we can bring these experiences to the largest amount of phones at a reduced cost with high speeds, I think that's just going to be kind of an order of magnitude unlock for crypto native adoption. And so for us, like the, it's like more like, you know, consumers aren't dumb. They can tell when you're trying to force a use case. And so the more that we can actually prioritize pragmatic mobile experiences with crypto native rails feels like something that we should all be prioritizing and dedicating a lot more effort and energy to. It seems like it's the right time now for mobile and new wallet use cases to, to be applied and actually brought to the masses in that a lot of it is predicated upon the infra, ZK, MPC, all of that is necessary in order for these this next layer of experience that abstracts away the complexity and unlocks new use cases to actually take root. So love those thoughts. I wanted to dive into a few specific sectors, and this will be kind of rapid fire, where I want to talk, I give briefly what you're excited about and what is NGMI to, to go back to a summer 2021 term. So, JMO, we're going to start with you and gaming. What is GMI and what is NGMI? 
I mean, I've touched on it a little bit earlier, but I think NGMI or Web 2.5 approaches that expect consumers to hop through a lot of different hurdles without like an, a very obvious value proposition. I think GMI are going to be those like Web 2.1 approaches where it's just a really strong game that you would play anyway, that now you can see a massive secondary market of on-chain and then full Web 3 composable on-chain games are GMI as well. All right, Gabby, your turn for music. What is GMI? What is NGMI? GMI is when Web3 tooling can be used to add something net new on top. So, you know, artists who have managers, labels, existing basically business models for how they make money, instead of cutting into that, how can you add something new that sits on top? Namely, how can you use NFTs as a way to have an additional revenue stream, but also to have more direct access to your fans and know who they are across Spotify, Instagram, Ticketmaster, all of the other places where you have very little insight. NGMI, royalties on chain in most cases. I would say for Web3 native artists, this may be something different, and that's an entirely different business model. But for mass market artists, I've spoken to very few people who actually have said, oh, I wish I made $10 for investing in this artist early, they actually would have rather spent $10 or $100 or $500 to get closer to that artist. Awesome. All right, going back to you, JMO. Payments, which isn't consumer, so I'm maybe quick overview about the link and then what's GMI and NGMI. For sure. I think the for us, payments become more consumer when we think about the ways like average people all around the world will use crypto native rails and require crypto native more front ends and applications. I think NGMI is, and payments are solutions that are thinking too small and too much of an echo chamber. So trying to have like merchants today who like can barely use stable coins, like really try to force, you know, more crypto native payment solutions there or trying to force put payment solutions that are only applicable to a crypto native community, where even if you're able to win all of the Web3 volume, you'll never really have a meaningful impact. And so I think GMI are those payment solutions that are really the complete opposite of that. They're really trying to win Web2 at scale where it's actually needed. All right. Gabby, last one of GMI versus NGMI. This one's a little more meta, but DAOs, GMI and GMI. I was dreading this one. GMI, DAOs are used exclusively as investment collectives, basically building wisdom of the crowd and decentralizing decision-making, but nothing more. And GMI, I've heard a quote that DAOs are like mullets, where they look really great up front, and then it's just a disaster in the back. So on that note, NGMI, when DAOs are used for human-in-the-loop coordination with a lot of people, it's really, really difficult to get the incentives right. I wish I could grow a mullet, so I, I take offense <laughs> to the mullet strategy, but... I apologize. Senior's awesome. mullet would be beautiful. Yes, <laughs> exactly. I'm going to dye my hair green. Cool. JMO, I, I know you got a couple projects in the TCG portfolio that you're fired up to, to discuss what are they and maybe quick story about how they came to be and then why you're so excited about them. 
For sure. I mean, we've, we've invested in about 27 companies now out of the fund. And, you know, I think we're all very excited about all of them, which is like a luxury to have at this point in the cycle. The two that I, I would love to highlight today, one is uh, Sphere, like I've discussed a bit. And as you can tell, payments are something that we're, I'm very passionate about. And Sphere is building Stripe on chain which is kind of an end-to-end payments API, on-ramp, multi-chain, fiat, and off-ramp. And so in just like a few lines of code, you can integrate things like recurring payments or tiered billing, subscriptions, all on-chain, which are like still very, very difficult. For me, you know, we found Sphere after they won the Solana Payments Hackathon. And it's just interesting because people have talked about crypto being a better form of payment for so many years. It's, it's almost like a longer running joke than and people trying to put their house on chain. Like it's it's just very consistent. And it's been a long time since that one guy bought Bitcoin with pizza, but we still don't have payment solutions at scale, even though crypto is more digitally native and would make a lot of sense given how fast we're transacting today. And so RD with Sphere can hopefully help lead that change. They're currently working with RPC providers like Helios but also like some deep end companies like Helium. And because they are like much more rigid, defensible of like a necessity for expanding the crypto community, but they're really trying to prioritize, like I've discussed on winning, you know, web two volume and really trying to solve issues around like USDT off ramp that have like very obvious product market fit and something that kind of feels like gravity. So if you're, you know, little plug, if you're looking for some solutions that are on payments, please reach out to me, connect with the Sphere team. And then another one that I'm excited about for sure is Curio. Curio is an on-chain gaming studio founded by Kevin Zhang and Yija Chen. And for us, Curio is like, and we think about gaming in general, it's super fascinating because, you know, greater user control has been a defining trend in gaming over the last like three decades, right? Like platforms like Steam played a really big like role in kind of aggregating, you know, supply and bringing all the games where you wanted. Really big titles like League of Legends were really popular because they were able to push monetization further downstream. And it showed you how like it powerful it was when someone had a real affinity for the game, how much money they'd be willing to spend and how much time they'd be willing to engage. You know, probably most popular today, things like Roblox, you know, that's really powerful for combining like all these lessons with more creative expression. And for us, that next iteration of greater player control comes with on-chain games, where you're not only talking about like user-generated content, but you can start to introduce the concept of user-generated logic through things like delegation. And so Comterio is really trying to build both the infrastructure and the IP to solve this issue and bring some of the most high-quality games to market. So really excited about what the, both these teams are doing and hopefully just solving more like pragmatic issues that we've talked about for a while, but haven't really become evident in the space yet. Awesome. Flipping it to you, Gabby, what are some companies in the TCG portfolio that you're excited to share today? Yeah, I've spent a lot of time talking about kind of media and brands more on the traditional consumer side of things. And now way on the other side of the spectrum, I'd love to talk about a company called Gia that we're really lucky to work with which provides blockchain-based micro-lending to small businesses in emerging markets. This is a really good example of, you know, we often are stuck in this echo chamber thinking about, like, NFT, PFP trading as, like, one of the only interesting parts of crypto to talk about. And we oftentimes ignore developing world use cases or write them off as being outside of our scope or uninteresting. But really, two-thirds of crypto users live in the developing world. Like we talked about earlier, so much of this needs to happen on mobile and there's a big opportunity 
to help rebuild these financial systems where it's really most needed. So kind of some background for Gia. Small businesses, specifically micro, small, and medium enterprises or MSMEs, account for nine out of every 10 businesses, half of global GDP, and two-thirds of jobs worldwide. And yet there's this $5 trillion credit gap for MSMEs across emerging markets. And actually what you see is with really limited access to reasonably priced upfront capital for these small businesses, they often rely on informal lenders for financing to run their businesses, which usually takes the form of communal finance, local savings and credit organizations that come together to pool cash and lend on a lottery system. This is a super fascinating area that I really didn't know about until meeting the GIA team, but they're called Sacos and Chamas in East Africa. They're called Jentas in Latin America, Paluagan in the Philippines, Chit Funds in India. And they're all these local savings and credit organizations, and they're built on this fundamental currency of trust of we all know each other so we can lend to each other to get upfront capital for our businesses. Obviously, because trust is this really important coefficient to make this work, it's very difficult to scale beyond that. And so the question that Gia asks is, how do we take these savings and credit organizations that work so well on a local level and combine them with the scalability, efficiency, and ownership that's offered by decentralized finance? So that's exactly what Gia does. They basically take all of the global crypto liquidity that is sitting idle and puts it to work with blockchain-based loans to these small businesses and then essentially rewards borrowers who repay with ownership, enabling them to create wealth for themselves and their communities. And it's really a two-way street where on the one side, small business owners get access to upfront capital. They also get access to the U.S. dollar through the form of USDC. And on the other side, in a time where markets are incredibly volatile, now retail investors or anybody who wants to put their liquidity to work gets access to emerging markets private credit. So this is early, but it's been super, super interesting to hear stories of the individuals who have taken out these loans and repaid them and being able to hear what it's done for their businesses. I'll just plug, we wrote a longer piece about it on the TCG blog called Finance Fairer, and it kind of explains some of these stories. And it's been really cool to see and very gratifying of, you know, this is a business that's truly uniquely enabled by crypto. There's one more that we haven't announced yet, but would love to talk about high level, which is building in kind of the private key management space. And we touched on this with like trying to onboard my dad to his first wallet. And it's just a disaster having him memorize his 24 word seed phrase. This is pretty topical. A month or two ago, actually a very popular cold wallet company called Ledger had some backlash from its community for violating its contract with users, essentially rolling out an opt-in feature that allowed users to subscribe to a recovery tool that would encrypt the user's private key and then send it to different places that would put it back together. And a big takeaway from that discussion and pushback is that, well, it's twofold. One, wallets and crypto have this massive tension between security and ease of use. And the current mental models for cold storage are really not going to work if we want crypto consumer to scale. And then two, a business like Ledger, at least in my opinion, saw recoverability as a big enough feature to potentially bet the farm on because they know that recovery is really essential for scale. And so, you know, kind of figuring out how do you take or find this balance between security and convenience and build a custody product that people really trust. I think that the hot take there is like, 
blockchains are not actually trustless, but they enable you to choose who you trust and what you trust them with. And building a trusted custody product is a really exciting opportunity, at least in our mind. And we've made an investment in that space that we're excited to talk about more soon. Awesome. And for all the listeners out there, I'll be sure to link these companies and the thought piece that Gabby referenced in the show notes. So make sure to check those out to, to drill them deeper. All right. On to everyone's favorite part of the senior studio. You know, I always struggle to find the hot pepper of the day. So I'm just going to go with a chapiltepine. I think that's how you pronounce it. Or Because I, I just had a cold brew and they sometimes good go well on cold brew. So JMO, what is your spiciest take inside of crypto? I'd say my spiciest take right now, and it's something I like I recently thought about inside of crypto. I think the most expensive NFT purchase of all time will be on Bitcoin and probably an ordinal, like as a result. And for me, I think like even as we see more utility driven NFTs, there will always be a crowd of OGs who want to flex in a way that is digitally native to the ecosystem that help them generate wealth. And the only larger buying base than Ethereum is Bitcoin. And while within the Bitcoin community, there are some who don't want to see Bitcoin used for anything outside of it, like, you know, a pet rock, right? The digital gold narrative. There, I think there will always be those who want to compare and flex. And so, yeah, I think ordinals could be the most expensive NFT purchase ever. If we see Satoshi's dormant wallet buy a rare Pepe on on Bitcoin, that would be internet breaking. Breaking. <laughs> Gabby, same same question to you. Inside of crypto, spicy sizzling take. I'm not sure how spicy it is. I guess you can let me know. I think the way that we experience and interact with crypto is largely defined by our ability to see it. And in that sense, I think block explorers play a huge role in influencing where people spend time and how. And specifically, we were talking earlier about all of these new ecosystems and all L1s and L2s popping up. And I actually think the block explorer or the interface for viewing what happens in those ecosystems is a huge part of what will continue to happen in that ecosystem and the growth that you'll see. And it's kind of like if a tree falls in the forest, but nobody's there to hear it, does it really make a sound? Yeah, I'll stop there. That I'd say pretty pretty spicy. A six out of ten on on the spice. I, I do okay. agree with you. That's too spicy for me already. <laughs> I do agree with you. I think the <laughs> ether scans of the world are OGs and have done a lot, but that next level block explorer once upon, which I think you guys both introduced me to, is is a new block explorer I've been spending time looking at and and it does make the experience better and creates context. All right migrating outside of crypto as we wrap up here jmo what is your hottest take outside of crypto i this one i'd say is definitely probably less than a six out of ten spicy but it's something i talk about with my dad and family all the time but i really think lebron is going to win another ring with Bronny. i think that's gonna happen <laughs> that so that, it's something that i'm passionate about that would be a sight to be seen hopefully it's in LA so that there's some maybe we could go to a game maybe hopefully and hopefully it times up with the bull market so we can afford those ticks 
<laughs> All right, Gabby, your turn. Spiciest take outside of crypto. I've been dying to share this one. <laughs> Kim Kardashian, Jimmo, don't laugh. Kim Kardashian's going to be the first female president of the United States. Wow. Again, the internet is breaking. Satoshi's dormant wallet is buying Bitcoin yeah. ordinals and Kim Kardashian is president. All right. I can explain. I can explain. Hit it. So she is getting experience to make her fit for the, for the role. First of all, she's a businesswoman with Sky Partners and Skims. She passed the baby bar and is really passionate about criminal justice reform. She's already been on the early innings of the campaign trail with Kanye. So she knows what it's like. She's also the antithesis of Kanye if he were to run, right? And she has been working to paint the picture of an American woman. I think she had that photo shoot with Paper Magazine in front of the American flag and bleached her hair blonde and things like that. And lastly, maybe this is the hottest part of the take, but I think to win the popular vote, being a conventionally attractive woman is going to be really important for especially middle America voters. And I think it actually will play a big role. So I think if a woman's going to become president, it might be Kim Kardashian. I'm not, I'm not putting my own opinion on this. That's just my hot take. Maybe maybe the hottest take we've had on senior studio. So thank you for that. (laughs) Definitely spicier than your block explorer take. So this is, yeah, this is not political (laughs) advice again. All right. One final question on that. Would you vote for her? Depends who else is running. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll leave that. But I love Kim. We'll leave that to 2028 and we'll, we'll revisit. If someone could create a prediction market for that on poly market so that we can. St- I know. We can start. That'd be amazing. Awesome. I know. I already hashed it on chain in case it comes true. Just in case. Just in case. Gabby. Thank you both for coming on. Where can people follow along with you guys as individuals and your journeys, but then also TCG? Yeah, you can follow me at on Twitter at John Moore 202 and then you can keep up with TCG at our website, ventures.tcg.co. I'm at Gabby underscore Goldberg on Twitter, and I'm GabbyGoldberg.substack.com for longer form spicy takes. Amazing. Well, thank you both so much for coming on Senior Studio. This was a lot of fun, a lot of insights, and a lot to drill into for the audience. So remember to to check the show notes on the Senior Substack or just natively on Spotify or Apple. And to everyone out there, thank you for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of Senior Studio. Please leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to podcasts if you love today's show. For more Seniors Capital content, check us out at seniorscapital.substack.com and shoot me a follow on Twitter at Benny P. Jacobs. We'll see you next time.